Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. We've been slowly working our way through the books of the Bible, one or two books at a time, and we've arrived at the last book of the Old Testament, and it's the book of Malachi, just four chapters. I'll be interested to see, Mike, how the Old Testament finishes. What's the, the main focus of Malachi? And indeed, who was Malachi? Malachi, his name means messenger. In fact, we're not really sure whether that was his name, because later on in the book it talks about, I will send my Malachi, my messenger. So was it his name? Was he just the messenger? We're not quite sure. But yeah, he's got some challenging and encouraging things to end the Old Testament revelation with, as we'll see as we unpack this. So maybe the messenger isn't the important thing, it's more the message. Yeah, so let's do what we've done several times as we've looked at these prophets and what we've said is so important. We need to set him in his context. He's the last prophet of the Old Testament revelation and he comes right at the end of the Old Testament period. So he's a a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah and his work dates from round about 430 BC, something like that. So just to set that in context, that was about 80 to 90 years after Haggai and Zechariah had urged the people to finish rebuilding the temple. Now, we looked at them in a a previous episode, and they'd encouraged the people who'd returned from exile to get on and build the temple, to complete the building of the temple that it stalled, and they'd promised great blessing and uh, the return of God's presence if they did. The trouble is, The temple had been completed, although nowhere near as grand as as before, but it had been completed. But the years that passed by and none of that promised blessing had come. In fact, to be honest, rather than blessing, all the people had experienced, we discover in chapter three, was hardship. And so they'd actually got to the point of thinking that Fulfilling God's requirements, doing what God said, was actually pretty meaningless. There's this little phrase in in chapter 3, verse 14, where he says, You've said it's futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? So the people are saying to God, we did what you said, and there hasn't been any benefit Yeah, exactly. It's not worked out as you had promised. And so I think the issue that we are dealing with, the issue they are living out of, and it has consequences for them and the challenge that he brings it, he's dealing with the issue of disappointment. And their disappointment, you know, all of us get disappointed in life, don't we, you know? And sometimes those disappointments are are short-lived, We didn't get that present we were hoping for at Christmas. Oh, well, there's always next year. But some can be much more deep-seated, can't they? And it's like they they can set in. And it's like this disappointment had set in deeply and profoundly to the point where I suppose they were really saying, it doesn't matter, what difference does it make, you know? And they got somewhat weary in their faith 
And I don't think it started out as a desire to outrightly reject God at all, just disappointment that chipped away at the edges until they no longer had the energy. I mean, maybe even some people listening to this are in a place like that where disappointment stepped in. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And what you used to give yourself, you, you just find it hard to even get energy to do it so you don't do it, so you don't do the next thing. And that's exactly what had happened here. So, I mean, the number of issues we end up being addressed here is there are religious issues. So even the priesthood had become both lax in their duties and corrupt. They were abusing the sacrificial system. They were neglecting the collecting of the tithes from God's people for the support of ministry. There were social issues Two of the big ones was mixed marriages, the Jewish people intermarrying with those from other races who'd been brought into the land, which was against their law. There were issues of divorce, easy divorce, economic injustices. And I think all these things had happened as people had just got, well, disappointed, weary. And so these are some of the issues that Malachi will address both in terms of challenging them for what they are doing, because each of those issues is addressed in this book, but also encouraging them that, you know, God is coming. He is coming. I know we've still got to wait, but he is coming and he will come and he will bless us. It's one thing I suppose to be disappointed with others and disappointed with ourselves, but being disappointed with God and what we believe perhaps he's promised us, that's, that's another matter. Yeah, and that is pretty deep and profound. And I, you know, I think we'd we'd be naive if we pretended it never happens for people. If it never happens for us, have I ever been disappointed in God? The honest honest answer is yeah. When things I thought He'd said or that He'd said He would do didn't work out, but at that moment you have a choice, and you have a choice either to feed your disappointment and to keep following it. Or to sort of take a grip and say, look, I don't understand this. And the honest truth and the honest truth, God, I'm telling you is I am disappointed. And yet, you know, you've got to put in that and yet. And yet I know enough about you. I know enough about what you are like from your word. I know enough about you from my own experience of you over the years. I know enough about you from what I see happening in other people's lives to know that you you always have a way of turning things round. And that if I don't let my disappointment have the last word, but bring it to you and say, I'm disappointed, but I'm still going to trust that you're going to do something, God, even if it's not quite the way that I had hoped. Because if not, we are in danger of what the Bible calls hardening our heart. And when we start to harden our heart towards God, which, you know, can move from disappointment and disillusionment to not caring to being hard to rejecting God it can be a, a slippery slope so bring your disappointments to God by all means but be ready to listen to what he says and be ready for him yet to surprise you but maybe in a way that works out very differently from what you had expected which would certainly be the case for the people here and you said that one response to this disappointment that they had was that they'd slip back in certain areas, for example, in their generosity of giving. 
Yes, one of the big issues that is challenged is the whole area of tithing in chapter 3. Tithing was the requirement that was there in the law to give one-tenth of your income to support the work of the ministry, to support the work of priests and so on in the Old Testament covenant system. And so here's, here's a little bit from chapter 3. God calls them to, to return. Interesting, it starts this section with, I, the Lord, do not change, so return to me. And they say, well, how are we to return? And God's answer is, will a man rob God, yet you rob me? Uh, it's quite powerful language. The failure to pay the tithe was to rob God. Why? Because Leviticus 27 verse 30 says the tithe is the Lord's. So if it is his, you take what is his, you are robbing him is the logic. And they say, what? How are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Sounds like they were sort of partially tithing there, doesn't it? Mm. Giving a bit. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. So they were withholding part of their tithe or maybe all of their tithe, perhaps because they were being logical and thinking, you know, we can't afford to do this because, hang on, if I give a tenth away, I've only got nine tenths left and I can't make that stretch to fulfill my needs. Whereas what God is saying here, it's, it's what I call God's impossible mathematics. With God, nine tenths with his blessing goes further than ten tenths without his blessing. So they were robbing God. They weren't being generous, as you just put it. Of course, tithing was only a start of giving in the Old Testament. There were many other offerings that they were called upon to, to give as well and to be generous to the poor. Just apply that to us today, though. I mean, are tithing still appropriate? Well, look, let me be honest and start by saying Christians have different approaches to this. So I'm not here to push any one particular viewpoint down people's throats. But here's a few things for, for us to think about. First, tithing is most definitely a part of the old covenant, the old law. So there is no doubt that it was an obligation on Israel in a way that it is not an obligation on me and you because you and I are not part of that covenant. It's not that obligation. But having said that, before we all breathe a sigh of relief, here's just a few sort of little challenges to get us thinking. I find it interesting that the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, tithed long before the law was given. Way back then? Oh, way back then. Genesis 14 and Genesis 28, you'll find examples of Abraham and Jacob tithing to God spontaneously. It's a spontaneous gesture. Now, where did they get that from? The law hasn't been given yet. It'd be hundreds of years before the law is given. Now, there were other nations that did this as well to their gods. So there was a cultural element to it. 
But there was something in their heart that spontaneously somehow knew that this, this level of generosity to God was an appropriate thing to do. So they weren't following a rule, they just wanted to do it. Absolutely. It wasn't a rule, it came out of their heart. So that's before the law. Huge generosity expressed in tithing that is not yet commanded. What about New Testament? Well, we know that by New Testament times, the rabbis had developed many, many nitpicking rules about tithing. And it's those that Jesus challenges. He challenges them for how they will tithe the tiniest little herbs from their garden, counting out the leaves, one for God and nine for me, and yet ignoring the more major issues of the law. So Jesus challenges attitude rather than the act of tithing as such. As a Jew, of course, Jesus would have tithed because he fulfilled the law and he never abolished it. It's not one of the things he said don't do. He simply challenged that it should be done with the right attitude. Now, I think we've got to be absolutely honest and say that, you know, in Acts and the New Testament letters, we do not find any command about tithing at all. What we do find consistently is generous giving. Uh, Acts 11, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, Galatians 2, Philippians 4, 1 Timothy 5, I could go on. Generous giving is consistently promoted as being an an absolute non-negotiable for Christians. If God has been generous to you, how can you not be generous to him and towards others? And I suppose where I am left is, well, Tithing is not an obligation under the new covenant. I personally find it hard to see how generous giving would be seen as less than tithing. It seems to me to be at least that, surely. If the law demanded a tenth, then surely generous giving would at the very least be that and probably be more. So I would say to people, it. It, it, it's a good sort of benchmark. I wouldn't want to make it a law, but it's a good benchmark. And maybe even for people listening to this today, it's it's good to see how your own giving to to God, to your local church, to to Christian organisations like good old UCB here, um, how that compares. And do you know what? What I've discovered often over the years is, as a pastor, when people have said to me, well, I, I don't tithe, but I do give generously. And I've sometimes challenged them to go away and work out. So could you go away and work out what percentage of your total income that is and, and see where it's at? And do you know what? They often come back to me and say, yeah, it was quite a bit short, wasn't it? And I just say, well, why don't you go and ask God what you should do about that? And that's what I say to people today. Here's a not bad benchmark, but why don't you go and ask God what he would have you do? And as you said, in the book of Malachi, a very strong use of the word rob. They were being accused of robbing God through withholding their tithes. Very, very powerful, isn't it? And of course, one has to be honest and say in context that is true because it's part of the covenant law that they had to give. And so they were breaking one of God's laws. So it, it is very much robbing. But I think even behind that, there, there's still a spirit there that says, 
don't you realise that when you're not a generous heart at people and generosity runs through both Old and New Testament prophets like Amos challenge people for not caring about the poor and needy, not putting their hands in their pockets and being generous. And I think still today, you know, if if we don't cultivate a a spirit of generosity, both in us as individuals and actually in our churches, our churches need to be generous in what they are giving to to mission into what they're supporting in their local community. Many do that through things like food banks and all sorts of things. Then we need to be known as the most generous of people, not the most tight-fisted of people. And so what's the sort of concluding message that Malachi is trying to share with his people? Well, obviously, he's wanting to challenge them about these issues, as we've said, the priests not doing their work properly, intermarriage, divorce, quick, cheap, easy divorce that was happening at the time, this this lack of tithing, all breaking the covenant. But his message and the whole of the Old Testament ends on a really positive note, which says, you know what, despite this, despite the fact of all of this, chapter four opens with words that say, surely the day is coming. The day they're short for the day of the Lord, that day we've seen before, that day of God's sovereign intervention when he's going to put things right and his kingdom will come. And of course, that day would involve judgment uh, for that which was wrong, but blessing for his people. And and so he does start that chapter by saying, yeah, uh, judgment will come and it will burn like a furnace and all the arrogant, every evildoer will be stubble in the fire. And yet, and yet, verse five says, see, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. So here is a promise that the Lord is coming and he's going to send a messenger to prepare for that coming. Now, the New Testament will pick this up, that Elijah, in inverted commas, that Elijah figure will be John the Baptist who prepared the way for the coming of Jesus. So it ends somewhat open-endedly. There is the warning of judgment if we don't turn to God, and yet a message of great hope that God himself is coming. The day of the Lord is coming so let's get ready. So the question is, when will that day come? And with the Old Testament ending with this book of Malachi, we go into the New Testament, but it's not just flipping a page. Yeah, the trouble is for us, of course, it is exactly that, isn't it? You know, just flip a page in your Bible, maybe a couple of pages, and uh, we're suddenly straight into Jesus. But as we flip those pages, there's an awful lot of history. So if we date Malachi as we have round about 440 BC, um, that's like 440 years before the coming of this messenger 
John the Baptist, who prepares the way for the coming of Jesus. And here's the interesting thing I find. The Bible is absolutely silent about those years. Uh, Now, there are some books uh, that are included in some issues of the Bible, some editions called the Deuterocanonical books or the Apocrypha, that are Jewish writings from that period that give us insights into how Jews were thinking over that time. But actually, those books were never accepted by Judaism as scripture, which is why Protestant churches at the time of the Reformation, when they wanted to get back to the original Hebrew and Greek text, didn't include them in their editions of the Bible. So that's why you don't find these in Protestant editions of the Bible, because they follow the original Hebrew text rather than the later Greek translation of the text that added some of these. But really, as far as uh, the Bible itself is concerned, we've got 440 years of silence. Why? Well, it's almost as if God is saying to his people, you have stopped listening, so I've stopped speaking which is a scary point to come to. I mean, God has spoken, spoken, spoken through these major and minor prophets that we've tracked over these last few episodes. God has spoken to his people again and again and again and again. And then, yes, they ended up in exile and they came back and he gave them another start and he speaks again and again. And still they're not hearing And it's as if now um, there's silence from heaven. It's as if God flicks the microphone switch and the channel goes silent. And yet there's not total silence because while God is not speaking through the Bible, he is speaking through history. And actually, it's as we look at a little bit at the history of what happens in those blank pages between our Old and New Testaments uh, that we find some world-shaping events that will help prepare the stage for the coming of Jesus. I was going to say, it's not as if when the Old Testament finishes, the world ground to a halt. So I suppose the question is, you know, why then was Jesus born when he was? What led up to that in those 400 years? It's interesting, there's a verse in the New Testament that says, when the time had fully come, God sent his son. And it's like God was waiting for the right moment. And it's events in these 400 years that help prepare that. So maybe I could just do a a quick sort of summary of what happens and then draw out what it was that helped prepare for that. A whistle-stop tour. Let's do that. So what happens over this time? Well, we've seen great empires, Assyria, Babylon, Persia. That's where we left them. But we've seen every time no great empire lasts forever. It always outstretches itself and ultimately collapses. That's exactly what happens. Two empires come on the scene. The first is the Greek empire over in the West. Alexander the Great will be someone that that people have perhaps heard of. And his empire grows from Greece, spreading towards the east, towards where our story has been based. Uh, And in 
334 BC, he, he marches east, basically conquering everything uh, before him. Asia Minor, Syria, Egypt, Persia. His kingdom actually even stretched as far as what we would call India today, establishing the greatest empire the world has ever known. And Alexander's aim, though, wasn't just to establish a great empire, but a way of life. And so wherever he went, he imported Greek culture. Now, some of those things would be challenging for Jews. They loved sport, nothing wrong with sport in itself, but sport and athletics was done naked and that was seen as quite offensive to Judaism. They were polytheists again, of course, and that was offensive. But one of the things that Greece would bring with them as, as well as sort of a certain way of thinking is they would bring an international language. They would give to the world what... English is to the world today. If you can speak English, you can be stood pretty much anywhere. So it would be with Greek. Wouldn't that be convenient for the spreading of the gospel? When Alexander the Great died, his empire split into four. A couple of smaller areas uh, in Greece, Macedonia, but two other empires. His, his, the rest of his empire split into two. A Ptolemaic empire, which was sort of basically... Egypt, and a Seleucid Empire, which was the sort of Syria-Mesopotamia area. Where did that leave Israel? The football in between the two once again. And over the next few years, it sort of bounced backwards and forwards, coming under the influence of one or the other. Eventually, it came under the dominance of the Seleucids to the north. And initially, they were sort of quite tolerant of Jewish beliefs, until a ruler came along called Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Epiphanes means God made manifest, so that tells you what he <laughs> thinks about himself, doesn't it? And he determines that he is going to absolutely impose Greek culture and practices everywhere, including on the Jews. So in 167 BC, he destroys Jerusalem and tries to exterminate Jerusalem. So he, he does things like forbid sacrifices and circumcision and Sabbath observance, and he forces the Jews to eat pork, and he destroys their scriptures, and he even sets up a pagan altar inside the temple and sacrifices a pig on the altar. That didn't go down very well, you can understand. And so there was a war, what we call the Maccabean War, when the Jews revolted against that and for a little while set up an independent kingdom, but eventually, frankly, becomes no different to the Seleucids who've ruled it, uh, the Hasmonean dynasty. Hasmon was the family of, of Mattathias and uh, Maccabeus. And uh, they really become no different. It's funny, isn't it? More things change, the more they stay the same. But there's yet another empire coming from the West, the Roman Empire, who, to cut long story short, eventually will expand. They'll defeat Carthage and Corinth in 146 and Athens in 86 BC. And at that point, the Greek Empire collapsed. In 63 BC, getting nearer the New Testament period, the general Pompey conquered Syria and Palestine and they become a Roman province. So by the time we get to the New Testament, we've now got Judea, as it is now called, being really a part of the Roman Empire. But just as Greece brought a gift, the gift of a language 
that would enable the gospel to be communicated anywhere in the world, Rome brought a gift. And what it brought was peace, stability, brought about by an iron hand, definitely. It brought roads, which meant you could easily travel. It got rid of pirates on the the Mediterranean so you could cross the seas and go anywhere. So here are these two great empires that would seemingly have nothing to do with their story, and yet that God will use to prepare the scene in giving both a language and a setting that would enable the good news of this Messiah that has been promised throughout the Old Testament to not just be birthed within the area that we've been tracking in our story, but to be able to expand from there and go throughout the whole world and through that do exactly what the prophets had said. Bring a message that would not just be for God's people in Israel and Judah, but would be a message for the whole world. And that's the exciting message that we'll start to look at as we go on to future episodes and start to turn to the New Testament. Mike Beaumont has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.